I identify as a computational journalist. I tell people it's two things. It's using computational techniques to do stories and doing stories about how computation and algorithms are affecting society. Many of the fundamental technologies of the web actually came out of journalism because journalism was forced to solve them first. So for example, D3 was built in a newsroom because journalists needed to do data visualizations. And Django, the popular Python app framework, was built in a newsroom because they needed to build interactive apps for their readers to interact with. There's actually a long history of journalism producing technology. Hello all, I'm Chris Beasley, guest host here on the Hacker Noon podcast for the next three weeks. For our first episode together, we'll be exploring a new tool called Workbench Data that makes big data analysis accessible to anyone, no coding experience necessary. Today I'll be talking to its creator, a professor of the double degree program in journalism and computer science at Columbia University. Blues creeping in every week. It's time to find a job you love. Indeed Prime connects tech talent to software, DevOps, and other knowledge worker roles with leading companies like eBay, Barclays, Vodafone, HomeAway, and more across 90 cities. Whether you're looking or hiring, get the right match for you based on location, skills, and salary. Candidates join totally free and also get access to resume reviews, one-on-ones with technical career coaches, work style assessments, and negotiation tips to seal the deal. Join now at indeedprime.com slash hackernoon to flip the script on the job search. That's indeed P-R-I-M-E.com slash hackernoon. Jonathan, it is so delightful to have you on today. Hey, thanks. I thought we might start off by having you give an introduction to uh, the project you've been working on lately called Workbench. Yeah. So, um, all right, I work at the intersection of journalism and computer science. And so I'm trying to help journalists work with data easier, especially journalists who don't code. And you you talked about computational journalism being two separate things. Can you take us down those tracks? Yeah. So I I, I identify as a as a computational journalist, um, which normally I get a lot of puzzled stares because it's a profession that didn't really exist ten years ago, uh, or certainly wasn't called that. And I tell people it's two things. It's using computational techniques to do stories and do, doing stories about how computation and algorithms are affecting society. So uh, one direction might be like using data science for investigative journalism, and the other direction might be, for example, um, looking into how uh, machine learning is being used to decide who has to stay in jail before their trial. So it's, it's not like covering the tech industry, although there's some of that. It's more like asking how um, algorithms in all parts of society are affecting our lives. Super hot topic right now. Wow. Which one of those is Workbench most applicable to? Workbench is more the, the first one. Workbench is, so it, this, this, came out of, um, this came out of a problem, like, like most good tools, right? Um, which is basically this. Um, so journalists need to work with data. Um, data journalism has become a big field. Um, you've probably seen a bunch of it around. There are entire sites that are data journalism now, like 538 and Upshot and so forth. Um, and 
society is going to use more and more data uh, as time goes on, right? This isn't a fad. This is a fundamental uh, new role of journalism is to, is to interpret the data that society produces. Uh, the issue is that requires um, technical skills, right? That requires data scientists and so forth. Uh, you, can, you can do a lot of this stuff in a spreadsheet, uh, but you, you pretty quickly run up into the limitations of, of doing things in a spreadsheet. Um, so people go to things like Jupyter Notebooks and, and Python and you know, R and, and sort of code generally, uh, which is great unless, of course, you can't code. And this is particularly a problem in a newsroom where uh, while most newsrooms now have a couple people who have some coding experience, the job of a journalist is not coding. It's producing stories, um, especially if you're a journalist on a particular beat. So say you're studying education and you get a bunch of uh, data on standardized test score results, and you want to do something like analyze how those results depend on the uh, poverty rate of the students who go to each school, right? That's your basic sort of regression. Well, this may be the first time in six months that you've had to work with data on the education beat. So it's unreasonable to expect that you are uh, a professional programmer. So we're trying to sort of bridge that gap, right? How do I get data work done that is beyond what I can do with a spreadsheet? Um, uh, if I am not working with data all the time and it's just sort of, uh, it, it's story driven rather than, than technique driven for me. Yeah, I, there's a quote by Brene Brown that I love uh, that is, stories are data with a soul. Um, and I think that this really encapsulates this intersection of journalism, uh, of comp computational journalism, because, you know, you're never going to see just a raw plot of the data uh, and then ask the person that's reading Medium or, you know, an, an article somewhere to just stare at this plot and make sense of it. Really, that's why we look to German journalism is to find for us which are the plots worth looking at and then once you've looked at that to get the nuance of what story that's telling um, on a whole. What have been some of the big stories that have come out of this field? Oh gosh, uh, data journalism takes a lot of different forms. So, um, you know, you've got your basic sort of uh, chart of some statistics. So, you know, you've got your unemployment rate graphs, you've got your crime rate graphs. Um, but even that is surprisingly um, uh, subtle. So, for example, take, take crime rate. Um, is crime going up or down? Well, it depends which crime you look at, which region you look at, and what time frame you look at. Um, and there's actually a wonderful interactive story by the Marshall Project a couple of years ago called, uh, I think it's called Crime in Context, that lets you like adjust all of these things. And... Mm. Uh, uh, so then the question becomes something like, okay, well, which region, which crime, and which time period should you look at? Or are there robust results where it doesn't really matter how you phrase the question? And that's, that's always what you're looking for when you do this, this type of statistical work is, uh, you know, what, what is the statement that's going to be true no matter how you ask it? Um, and so, mm -hmm. for example, you can see there's a big drop in violent crime since the 90s pretty much everywhere. Uh, so that's one end of the scale. The other end of the scale um, would be something like the Panama Papers, 
Um, mm. So huge international investigation, more than 400 new, newsrooms uh, were involved. Incredible global impact resulted in the resignation of heads of state in three countries, mm. which is insane. It took down three presidents. Um, and um, the data there was this huge leaked cache of uh, documents and uh, databases. Um, so uh, data journalism can be anything from a one-off chart that um, is literally produced in an hour to you know a multi-year investigation that hundreds of news organizations are involved in uh, on terabytes of data. Uh, and I've I've worked the entire gamut um, from one end to the other. So tell me what problem Workbench solves. Like, what's possible with it that wasn't possible when Panama Papers hit? Uh, so one of the things that we're trying to address is this um, this issue of uh, not requiring people to code. But at the same time, we want the work to be reproducible. So we want everything to be procedural. and um, and uh, so this is transparency, right? And you've probably many members of our audience have, have heard about like the reproducibility crisis in science mm. or um, the open science movement. Um, well, guess what? In journalism, reproducibility and transparency are even more important because the job is to communicate um, the results to the public uh, and to build trust. Um, so actually, um, I'm going to, I'm going to, for those of you watching a video here, I'm going to share my screen for a second and just, just show you what the UI looks like. Um, uh, so this is Workbench. You uh, Down on the left side here are a series of steps. So for example, this um, loads some uh, public housing data from the city of San Francisco. Um, and this is just the raw data set. It's got like a gazillion columns and so forth. And then we do some data cleanup here. Um, and then we do a group operation. And you can see all of this is visual here. And we're summing the number of market rate units and affordable units in each neighborhood. And then when we're done with that, we make a chart. So this is an example of a pretty basic story, right? We're basically just downloading some data, doing a group, or you might call it a pivot table if you're working in a spreadsheet. Um, and now we can look at the relative amounts of uh, market rate and affordable units in each of these San Francisco neighborhoods. Amazing. Well, I, I appreciate you saying so. Uh, <laughs> that's like... something you sh should be able to do with any data tool. But now, right, here's, here's the good parts. So a few things. So first of all, in Workbench, everything is live. So I can set this part where I download the data and say, uh, you know, check it every day. Um, and suddenly this whole thing now runs every day, right? So unlike yeah. a spreadsheet, every, uh, you know, everything in Workbench is, is connected to, to live data. And then the, the chart at the end, um, I can now uh, you know, embed this live in my uh, CMS with this little, little embed code. So it's a way to produce um, uh, auto-updating stuff, uh, which can be especially wow. fun if you're doing things like monitoring Twitter. And then this document, which we call a workflow, I can take this whole thing and link it to the story, right? I just set it mm -hmm. as public. So now when I click on that chart I embedded, it takes me back to this thing. And um, as opposed to like a Jupyter Notebook, there's no code here, right? So yep. uh, 
even more than trying to solve the problem of the journalist uh, not being able to, to write code, um, journalism has this additional problem, which is if you want to show the audience what you did, right? If I'm reading this story and I'm like, huh, citation needed, um, I can go back to this and uh, start to understand what it was the journalist did, uh, even if there's no reason for me to understand uh, how to do data science with code or, or what a Jupyter notebook is. So that's the, that's the basic idea. It's a reproducible data science platform uh, built for the needs of data journalism. And as you might imagine, uh, people in other industries are starting to use this as well, because this is, this is one of the sort of challenges of the moment is, okay, everyone's saying data, 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 data is important, but how do we get people who don't normally work with code to work with data in a more advanced and transparent and reproducible way? Yeah, I mean, this feels like, you know, getting things into Excel and the extent to which that changed business. This feels like just the next iteration beyond that. Yeah, I mean, the spreadsheet paradigm hasn't changed since 1979, right? So we're now 40 years on from a grid of cells, and Workbench kind of looks like a spreadsheet, right? So you've got this sort of spreadsheet interface, and I can actually just go in here and like, edit things, right? So, you know, mm. this shouldn't be 31, this should be 108, right? Um, and so it's kind of like spreadsheety, but notice when I did that, it actually added a little edit cell step. So ah. I literally can't do anything that isn't recorded uh, and transparent. There's no way I can alter the data without creating a, a record of what I did. And that's, again, extremely important for, for public trust. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it also feels like this pulls in more possibility for citizen journalism. Um, and as more and more of us are sort of quasi-journalists, like, now am I a journalist because I have a podcast? <laughs> like, sure, you're it a feels like it's more accessible than ever to just become a journalist, and it's more needed than ever. So this makes me hopeful for you know, putting these tools even in my hands if I needed to do a story. So, like, how do people get started with this? Is this all, they can go to Workbench, start start going already? It's totally available and ready to go? Yeah, so uh, you can see the URL if you're looking at the video of this. It's, it's uh, workbenchdata.com. But uh, actually, we've built um, training. So this is the other part of this, right? It's not only to provide people this, these, these tools, but provide them the training they need to do this type of work. So we've built an online interactive data journalism course. So we joke that, you know, it's like Code Academy, but without the code. Uh, so there's, <laughs> this is a complete, um, actually follows very closely an introduction to data journalism course that I taught for years. Um, and it goes through all of these lessons. So for example, here's a lesson on how to work with some campaign finance data. And if I click on this, uh, what I get is this sort of series of interactive screens that guides me through um, the steps I need to, uh, in this case, um, work out how, many, how much of the, the money for this New York state election came from out of state and who it came from. Mm -hmm. uh, so it walks me through the, the, the steps one at a time and gives me little, little check marks after I do each one. We're trying to bring this type of ability to more people. 
Uh, and interestingly, it's been especially popular um, outside the U.S. We have a, a lot. Uh, most of our users are actually now international because um, there's less uh, availability of data journalism being taught in schools in many countries, and so we're we're uh, we're proving out this idea that uh, this is uh, expanding the access or the or the range of people who can do this type of work with public interest data in their own communities. That the the impacts of that I hope will be obvious to everyone. <laughs> I do want to come back to the cleaning of the data bit. One of the things that I know is that cleaning the data often takes more time than anything else <laughs> and is is nasty. Um you, you very quickly was like, and then step two, we clean the data. And then step three, and I'm like, I know there's there's more to it than that. I'm wondering if you could speak to, um, you know, we clearly don't have time for you to go a whole course in what it takes to do that, but that seems like a better part of what would what might stop somebody in their tracks. Oh, man. Um, <laughs> yeah, step one, get the data. Step two, step three, profit, right? So that... <laughs> Cleaning data is the uh, dirty, open secret of uh, not just the data journalism community, but just data science in general. So when this is surveyed, cleaning data and, or formatting it or ETL or whatever you want to call it, data wrangling, is the thing that always takes the majority of time. So depending on which survey you look at, it's between 30 and 80%. Uh, so I am super interested in in uh, data cleaning, because I think it's very under-investigated, under-invested in. Um, it's, it's very sexy to talk about like new ways of analyzing data, but um, most of the time you don't need a new way to analyze data. In fact, new ways to analyze data in journalism can be uh, counterproductive because if your audience doesn't understand what you did, then you have a problem with the story. So we're not looking for new ways to analyze the data generally. We're looking for uh, ways to get our work done more efficiently. Um, so, uh, for example, some of our, our uh, viewers might know uh, Google Refine, or it's now also called OpenRefine, which is this much-loved specialized tool which um, for cleaning dirty data. So uh, the main thing that uh, it's used for is Say you have a list of, uh, you know, 10,000 names. So, for example, um, uh, donors to a political campaign. Well, those names aren't going to be standardized, right? You're going to have someone with and without their middle initial. You're going to have spelling errors. You're going to have, um, you know, typos. Um, if, you're, if they're company names, you're going to have sometimes with ink, sometimes without ink, sometimes with ink dot. You're going to have different capitalization. You're going to have different spacing. I mean... If you've done trailing spaces. Oh man. <laughs> trailing white space. Trailing, uh, I am for the podcast listener, I'm wagging my finger <laughs> vehemently. And character encoding. <laughs> I can't tell you how much in my life I've lost the character encoding. Um, so what uh, OpenRefine does is it clusters all of these names by looking for similar names, right? It's like, oh, these two are the same except for the dot or the white space. Um, and so we we built the OpenRefine um, clustering tool 
uh, into Workbench. In fact, why don't I just show you an example of that? Because this is a this is a fun one. So um, when you open up Workbench, it comes with a bunch of what we call recipes, which is stuff that uh, you know people have done, which you can learn from and copy. It's kind of like GitHub, right? You can like fork this workflow. Uh, mm-hmm. And one of them is um, uh, on the other tab. Hey, we're doing it live. Okay, here we go. Um, this is to try to get a list of the largest land- landlords in San Jose. And so we can actually, this is another fun thing in Workbench, we can actually scrape it right off the government site because uh, we've got some built-in scrapers. So it's, it's this, for some reason, they publish this data only as a 6,000-row table right on their website. <laughs> Good times, right? So there's some data cleaning for you. Um, but we can just slurp that right into Workbench. And then um, we've got this uh, refine step here, um, which is we've named because as an homage to um, OpenRefine. And what it's showing us here is all of the different uh, owner names, right? So we want to know who owns the building. Um, and you can see there's thousands and thousands of them. And if I hit find clusters, what it's done is it said, okay, these look like they're probably the same. So here's SX Portfolio LP and here's SX Portfolio L.P. And it's like, okay, those are got to be the same. And mm-hmm. here's City of San Jose and here's San Jose, City of, right? So it, it automatically figures out which ones are similar and then I can just press the merge button and voila, that's the first step to um, cleaning, cleaning yeah. this data. That's huge though. It, um, it saves a lot of time, right? If you don't have this tool, you end up right. editing all of this stuff by hand. Amazing. Yeah, this just has so much business value as well as, you know, this seems like a thing that's about journalism, but this is a business tool too, right? Yeah, totally. And it's, it's starting to be used um, for business analytics and um, marketers like it because they can scrape stuff like you can you can pull tables off web pages and and that sort of thing uh you know so we we built it for journalists but in solving a a problem for journalists we are also solving a problem for for other people which is not the first time that's happened um so uh probably uh, a lot of people don't know uh, many of the fundamental technologies of the web actually came out of journalism because journalism was forced to solve them first so for example uh, D3 was built in a newsroom uh, because journalists needed to do data visualizations. And uh, Django, the, the popular Python app framework, was built in a newsroom because uh, they needed to build uh, interactive apps for the readers to interact with. So we, there, there's actually a long history of journalism producing technology. I think this also segues into my thought of the sort of innovation that comes out of the commons. Um, even though journalism is, you know, in some ways privatized because, you know, there's there's private owners of newspapers and whatnot. Um, you're part of Columbia, and I just don't want it to go unnoticed how much of our innovation comes out of academia as well as things like the space program. And there's just a lot of innovation that comes out of the public commons, even though where from where I sit, most of the conversation pretends like business is really the driving force of innovation in the country. So I just want to talk about how you sit with Columbia and and why you choose to be there. Yeah, well, I mean, academia uh, and government 
spending has one enormous advantage over private investments, which is that they can afford to invest in things where it's just not clear you're going to get a return in an acceptable time horizon. So, uh, you know, we're trying to prove out this new paradigm of, of doing data work. And, you know, we've been working on this for about three years and, uh, you know, people are starting to use it and start starting to, to take off in a, in a satisfying way. But, uh, as a VC pitch, you know, like I want, it's, it's a harder case to make, um, because it's fundamentally an experiment, right? That's what, that's what research is. And, you know, there's a lot of noise, uh, in the tech, uh, the commercial tech space about how, you know, fail fast and innovation is about risks and new mm-hmm. ideas. And that's great, but there's, there is still a risk threshold beyond which, uh, you know, people don't want to touch it. And so, for example, pharmaceuticals is a great example of this. Um, there's, um, there's this, this concept they call the valley of death, which is, uh, you know, if you're doing very basic research, you can get it paid for by the government. And if you've got something that, you know, has had a positive clinical trial, um, you can start to get commercial money for investment. But um, there's this in-between space where you've just sort of got the, the basic research and um, you don't quite have proof that you have a product. That's That's very, very hard to fund. So there's this whole sort of range of, of stages of, of technology. Um, uh, and of course the internet was incubated by the government as well. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm old enough to remember the day that the national science foundation pulled out of the internet in 1994. Uh, but, uh, before that, you know, they paid for the backbone for many years. So it's, I, I really see technology production as this, this sort of multi-stage pipeline where the earlier stages are just too risky for private investors. And so, so uh, government and academia fill those gaps. Sunday Night Blues creeping in every week. It's time to find a job you love. Indeed Prime connects tech talent to software, DevOps, and other knowledge worker roles with leading companies like eBay, Barclays, Vodafone, HomeAway, and more across 90 cities. Whether you're looking or hiring, get the right match for you based on location, skills, and salary. Candidates join totally free and also get access to resume reviews, one-on-ones with technical career coaches, work style assessments, and negotiation tips to seal the deal. Join now at IndeedPrime.com slash HackerNoon to flip the script on the job search. That's Indeed, P-R-I-M-E dot com slash HackerNoon. Yeah, the, I I just learned last week that commercial aviation would not have made it if it were not for the government paying for air freight, essentially. The mail went by airplane, and that's how it became possible to create a commercial fleet that then became passenger planes. But none of that would have happened without government investment. And space flight's the same thing, right? Like NASA or uh, SpaceX has been able to develop its rockets because they have multi-billion dollar contracts with NASA to deliver cargo to the International Space Station, right? So every, I mean, and then, you know, let's let's talk about uh, mobile phones, right? Like those, the, the basic research for radio waves was, was done at MIT in, in World War II. I mean, it just sort of goes, just sort of goes on and on. Um, all of our uh, tech comes through this stage. I mean, even look at the AI, uh, sort of the deep learning explosion, right? Well, I mean, there's a lot of ways to tell that story, but one thread of it is Jan LeCun, who's known for being at Google. Uh, he was a professor before he was at Google, right? So again, it's, it's, 
it's non-industry money that produces the the early stage breakthroughs in in many cases. Yeah, I think it's absolutely the case. I mean, people really have a tendency to want to pretend like VC is the highest risk money, but it's just not. It's absolutely not true. You have to you have to be showing product market fit unless you're just really really lucky to get in on a little corner of something. Yeah, well, you know, never underestimate the value of a good story. Uh, Indeed. There have been some whoppers, but don't mistake that for ground truth, for how shit really gets done. <laughs> looking at you, color. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I'm so, sometimes I have these days where I'm like, can, can someone give me $50 million? I mean, uh, and, and journalism is, is very hard. Don't to we find. all? Yeah. <laughs> Um, actually, uh, let's talk about journalism funding for for a minute because I think I think I maybe maybe know some things that that people will find interesting. So um, so there's there's a book uh, by Jay Hamilton out of Stanford called Democracy's Detectives, and it's about a strange subject. It's about the economics of investigative journalism, and um, he shows two things. First, he shows that that journalism or investigative journalism is uh, often one of the highest rates of return things that you can invest in uh, societally. So uh, for example, um, you know, the Panama Papers um, has uh, revealed billions of dollars of tax evasion. Um, about five years ago, there was a series um, covered by the LA Times that covered corruption in the Orange County government. Um, again, just huge taxpayer losses and so forth. And so when you get a, a hit like this, the return on investment to society is on the order of 100 to 1. So it's huge. It's an, it's an enormously beneficial thing for society to do. But uh, the newsroom doesn't see that money, right? That money goes back to citizens normally and not the news organizations. So that pr puts you in a situation where this incredibly valuable um, public good is underinvested in. Uh, just as economic theory would would predict, um, um, and so that that's really a conundrum that each society has to figure out how to solve. Is how do you fund this thing where the benefit doesn't go back to the person who does it, um, which gets mm. into the economics of news, which is this whole other tangled web that uh, is better for another day. But anyway, that's that's what we're trying to do. Is we're trying to to squeeze money. Uh, out of uh, these non-traditional funding stories, uh, sources uh, who have to be willing to play a game where they're not going to see that money back, even, even if you are a success. Right. What gives you hope about that? Uh, well, <laughs> maybe we are talking about journalism funding models. Um, <laughs> the way that journalism is funded in this country has changed enormously over the past 10 years. Um, so advertising is a much smaller part of journalism revenue. In fact, journal, uh, advertising is now less than half of the revenue of the New York Times. It was the majority for decades. Um, and instead, they're selling um, digital subscriptions and memberships and, uh, you know, tote bags. I mean, events, all of it. Um, philanthropic journalism funding is, has become uh, one of the fastest growing segments. Um, one of the best known examples is ProPublica, entirely philanthropic money. Um, and so these other types of funding have stepped up. Um, in other countries, people seem to be less averse to, to government funding of journalism. In this country, a lot of people mm -hmm. don't like that. 
but the BBC still does fantastic work. Uh, and I should say not just not just in the UK, right? They they do it in dozens of languages. So they're they're one of a handful of global news organizations, and that's all government money. I just want to have like BBC is one of my favorite things. I cannot believe the quality of the content that they put out, and it's really obvious how different what they make in terms of subject matter is. It couldn't be more different than what you would see on like NBC or ABC or Fox. Oh man, yeah. General, I mean, yeah. There were there was an old French publisher um, who once famously said the uh, the first duty of a journalist is to be read, which yeah. I love as a provocation, right? It's I mean, it's true that if no one pays attention to what you're doing, you don't have any effect, right? That's the big weakness of journalism is that somebody has to somebody has to care, right? You you can't. You can't arrest anybody. You can't change laws. You can't do anything on your own. Someone else has to be moved to do something. So, um, you know, you have to produce things that audiences want to see. At the same time, you know, that's that's may not be the sort of just the facts reporting that places like the BBC or the Associated Press want to produce. If you if you ask people. Um, they'll often tell you that, you know, they're, they're tired of sort of opinionated journalism, um, mm. which I understand. Um, you know, I am too, to some extent, but, um, consumption data shows that that's what people like to consume. So it's, it's really this interesting double bind where, uh, I think people have sort of an aspiration of being, of wanting objective journalism, but, uh, you know, they, there's a lot more sort of, uh, it's like your Netflix queue, right? Like you always have the documentaries in the queue and you're like, Oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, an educated person. I'm going to watch this documentary on ants in Madagascar <laughs> or, you know, but you never do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think there is this, uh, the bias towards negative information, you know, because our biology really wants us to pay attention to the negative thing that the saber-toothed tiger tiger that might kill us right so and i think that to some extent there's only so much that journalism can do if people are physiologically in a stressed out situation they're going to reach for the mindless story they're going to reach for the piece of chocolate cake i mean there's lots of there's lots of things that that show how different humans react when they're really stressed out than when they're not really stressed out. And, you know, there's only so much that journalism actually can be responsible for solving that problem. Yeah. Uh, which brings us to, Hacker News is actually kind of a good place to talk about this, which brings us to our information distribution systems, right? So let's talk about the Facebook newsfeed. Let's talk about uh, Twitter's filters. Let's talk about Facebook's new news product, which is called uh, Today In. Um, hasn't rolled out in, in most major cities yet. They're testing it in smaller markets first. So if you haven't seen it, that's why. Um, not. Uh, so Neiman Journalism Lab, which is a wonderful little, it's a news site about the journalism industry. Um, uh, and it's really good. And if you have any interest in this stuff, you should watch it. They did a wonderful sort of audit of the types of news that Facebook's uh, Today In product shows people. And it turns out to be a lot of crime news. Um, so that's not surprising if you base it on what people are clicking on. Right. But right. of course, 
you can write that algorithm to show any type of news. So the there's you have to if you are a designer of an information filtering algorithm, you are making editorial choices. So we are right now in our society um, at all of these platforms uh, making choices about what is the sort of news we're going to see, um, and that's a difficult choice to make if you're a product manager or an engineer because you have probably never thought about this stuff before, right? You, you probably weren't hired to think about what is the information that society needs. And so there's a real disconnect between the technology world and the journalism world, which has been thinking about this stuff for better or worse for centuries. Um, and that's part of why I've been uh, you know, teaching in the field that I've been, been in, right? So I've been teaching this, this double master's degree in computer science and journalism at Columbia. And it's to try to make people who are thinking in this, uh, dare I say, intersectional way. Because uh, I, want, I want product managers who have uh, an editorial attitude to the products they're designing. Well, we have to. You can't pretend that there is a, there's no such thing as a not biased thing. And the thing that drives me most, 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 most crazy about the discussion of AI is that I think most people have gotten this by now, but there's occasionally somebody will show up in these arguments and will act like there's some magical transubstantiation that happens because we pushed it through math that it has now become objective. And that's just utterly not the case. Somebody had to write that algorithm. Somebody decided which got a 0.75 coefficient instead of a 0.2 coefficient and how everything gets weighted and the scoring system that puts this post at the top versus 11 posts down. Yeah, they had some sort of goals, right? And if they weren't clear about their goals, then you know, doing nothing is still doing something, right? There's no... Um, there's, there was a line from uh, Matt Cutts many, many years ago, um, uh, and he was saying, the, uh, so Matt Cutts was for many years the head of search quality at Google, so he made a lot of these mm. choices about what would appear in search results. And he said, the only way we could give objective search results is to put them in alphabetical order. <laughs> right. And I hope people get that, that it's important what, who gets on the first page of Google, and it's equally as important who gets on the first page of the feed. And neither Google nor Facebook or almost anybody else is exposing how those decisions are made. I mean, those are complete. There's no thought that that itself would be a commons. Of course, we could have a policy that would say you have to expose to us your ranking al algorithms. There's no, there's no reason why we couldn't have that be publicly available and auditable. Or that we couldn't, for example, require Facebook to let the, all the items off of the feed be scra scraped so that it is possible to do some sort of analysis on it to understand which stories are showing up, which ones aren't storing. But neither of those things is currently possible. They're difficult, yeah. So this is, this is a complicated area, right? And so a lot of people are calling for regulation around this stuff. But um, I think it's unlikely that we will be able to write meaningful regulation about what sorts of information platforms show people um, for the same reason that it's difficult to write regulation about what sort of information a newspaper runs, right? It's like, how do you 
how do you define what you want? How do you test for compliance with the law? How do you do that in a way that mm-hmm. doesn't infringe um, First Amendment rights? Which, but by the way, is not a metaphor here. When I say First Amendment rights, I literally mean freedom of the press because this is journalism we're talking about, right? This isn't like, mm-hmm. why isn't my post going viral? I want everyone to listen to me. This is, no, we're talking about regulating what news sources say. So um, literally First Amendment rights. Uh, so it's difficult to put this sort of stuff into law, not least of which because I don't think we're ever going to agree on what that law should say. Mm-hmm. But um, I think transparency and the ability to audit these platforms would be a good step. Um, and so so this is sort of the the second part of what I do as a computational journalist, which is to try to understand what these algorithms are doing. Um, and there is stuff that you can do. So you can run experiments um, on the Facebook newsfeed, right? So you can compare what you see to what your friends see. You can put the same post uh, with and without a colored background and see whether it gets more engagements. Um, you can, um, uh, and people have actually done this. Um, this was Which a color gets the most? I need to know, Jonathan. I put a colored background post today and I'm now wondering if I shouldn't have. <laughs> oh no. Okay. So the experiment, which was done by um, Nate Matthias, uh, he it was a lovely post. So there's a beautiful post called how, called how anyone can audit the Facebook newsfeed, which is an introduction to, to these sorts of, of like roll your own uh, in algorithmic investigations, which is really good. Um, and uh, unfortunately he didn't test which color he just found that putting a color uh, increased distribution by, I think it was 2.1 times. Oh yeah. No, I definitely edit. The thing that I originally wrote was too long. And so I had to shut, shove it down into a smaller character so that I could get it with the pretty colors. I put like a orange back. It was really, it's good. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that stuff matters though. And, you know, coming from a background of designer, it's super obvious to me that that would have a big impact, but it's maybe not so obvious to everyone else. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you know, this is one of the cases where, like, the data tells you something that you could have already guessed. Um, mm-hmm. But what I like about that experiment is he goes into great detail on how you run the experiment. And you don't, I mean... That's the important part, yeah. You don't need anything more than a spreadsheet to do this stuff, right? So if you want to start to ask questions about what your platforms are showing to you, probably the simplest thing you can do is compare it to your friends, right? And then, uh, you know, find some friends with, with, uh, who are different from you in some way, right? Who live in a different city or who are, uh, you know, different race, class, or gender, right? Go for the classics, um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, or different political viewpoints. And, um, you know, you can, you can ask these questions. I think we're, or it's exciting to me that we're coming up on an era where people are asking these questions more and more. Uh, and of course, journalists are asking these questions and often have more resources or more access. Um, so for example, I was involved in a story um, uh, at ProPublica uh, when I worked there a few years ago called Surgeon Scorecard. And what Surgeon Scorecard was, was the first ever publication of surgeon-level complication rates. So in other words, they took mm. voluntary surgeries like, you know, knee replacements and so forth. And they asked how often was someone readmitted within 30 days for a complication related to their surgery. And um, this is important because um, 
Preventable medical error is the third cause of death in the U.S. It's estimated between 200 and 400,000 people a year die for because of preventable medical error. Right? This isn't like um, you know people died um, after surgery, which you know uh, unfortunately is a fact of life. This is somebody was able to say that a mistake was made. But uh, we've known this for decades, and patient advocates have been saying for decades that you know one of the big things that has never been tried, which would probably make a difference, is let's publish these these complication rates. Let's talk about them. And of course, uh, advocates for doctors really don't want this. I mean, this is they um, you know, and it's not just nobody likes accountability. It's it's also it's very hard to compare the apples to apples cases, right? If you're a surgeon who takes on complicated cases because you're an expert surgeon, then your patients aren't the same. So what we did at ProPublica is we um, got five years of Medicare data, which is about 40% of the um, surgeries that are done in the US are done under Medicare. So it's a pretty big chunk of the population. And we analyzed these rates, statistically controlling for differences in the patients, patient population, um, as best we could after consultation with um, a bunch of biostatisticians uh, to produce these these numbers for the first time. That was only possible because the Wall Street Journal had filed suit to get access to these anonymized patient records. Um, wow. Uh, and they did that because they wanted to do a story about Medicare fraud, which they did. Um, but they won that lawsuit, which made possible our story at ProPublica. So that's an example of something that a journalism institution can do that a private citizen would have a hard time with, which is to litigate a multi-year lawsuit against the government for access to data. So there is a, um, a benefit and a, and a reason for having journalism institutions as opposed to just citizen journalism. Beautiful. Uh, I think it... I think it's the bridge between those is where I think it's so interesting because we have this post-truth world that we're now living in and it seems like where you can actually touch the ground truth or at least touch the raw data and look at how it was procedurally generated does open up the possibility for people who don't necessarily... Ha they don't even have to trust the source or the analysis. They can go look at it themselves, and they can become literate enough in in the data to be more confident and and then know whether that source is doing the sort of analysis that they find credible. Yeah, well, you know, I think of this as citation needed, right? Like, uh, you know, most of us do not follow the sites on Wikipedia most of the time, but the fact that they're there makes everyone more trustworthy, right? So. Again, this is one of the mm -hmm. things we're, we're doing with Workbench, right? It's the fact that you can click on the chart if you've done the story with Workbench and see the entire process uh, adds credibility. And credibility is very important um, at this point in history. Um, trust in, in journalism is down. It's at historic lows. Um, and there's all kinds of reasons for that. Um, it predates President Trump. It's been, it's been falling for decades. It predates the Internet. Um, it's probably related to sort of lowered trust in institutions generally. But whatever the reason, um, this is a moment where journalism has to think very carefully about what generates trust. And one of the things that we know uh, experimentally generates trust is when people can uh, check the journalist's work. 
So that's why show your work is one of the, the mottos of data journalism. Beautiful. Well, I'm going to start wrapping up. Is there anything that you'd like to add to the conversation to make it feel more complete? Oh, man, we went over everything. I, th I think that'll do it. <laughs> do you have any books or podcasts or anything to recommend to learn more? Uh, to learn more about this stuff? Oh, well, um, uh, I really enjoyed um, now a somewhat older book by Nate Silver uh, called The Signal and the Noise, which is all about prediction. Um, prediction is uh, very interesting to me because that, uh, as he put in that book, prediction is the connection between the objective and the subjective, uh, which I think is a very interesting and uh, interesting statement. Um, and then if you're super into this stuff and want to learn more about data journalism in general, there's a bunch of places you can go. Um, there is a, um, an open Slack channel called News Nerds, which is all about people who work in journalism and technology. There's a meetup group across the world, actually, called Hacks and Hackers. Get it, right? Hacks and Hackers, um, where you can go. Um, and uh, I've published um, a bunch of courses. If you're like uh, a more engineering, computer science inclined person, um, my uh, Frontiers of Computational Journalism course is now available uh, I've videoed all of the lectures so you can like learn uh, exactly what the uh, the students uh, in the computer science and journalism double degree program at Columbia learn. Uh, and of course, uh, Workbench has that introductory course. So that's at uh, workbenchdata.com. That's an extraordinary resource. Um, last question then, what is your favorite hack? My favorite hack? Yeah, so... Um, I think I'm going to go with gravity assists. So the, the method where you can accelerate a spacecraft by flying it near a planet, um, because we would not be able to explore the solar system without it. And this is, it's a beautiful little fact of physics that if you've got, you know, you can do on a napkin with, with like high school algebra, but it took until the early sixties for anybody to notice this. And suddenly, you know, now we can send space probes to Pluto because of this. So I, I'm, I'm, continually impressed by the fact that the universe allows this. I, why would I be surprised that you would choose a literal cosmic scale hack for your favorite hack? You get the point for the biggest hack. <laughs> that was, but, uh, but uh, sometimes the, the universe rolls your way. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much, Crystal. That was Jonathan Stray. Check out links to Workbench Data and all the resources he mentioned in the show notes. Please don't forget to subscribe to the Hacker Noon podcast on iTunes and YouTube and follow us on social media. You can also find us on hackernoon.com and podcast.hackernoon.com. Until next time, I'm Chris Beasley.